Hello and welcome to another edition of Vocally Versatile. I am your host, Raven, and we're going to have some fun tonight. And welcome back to another episode of Vocally Versatile. My, I am your host, Raven, and I have our co-host with us yet again, uh, Gartrell. Welcome back. We're going to go over Linux gaming today, I believe. Yes. Um, the sordid and storied history of gaming on everyone's favorite underdog platform. <laughs> Yes, it is a sordid history. <laughs> yeah, and actually, one of the interesting points of gaming on Linux is just how early some studios tried to adopt the platform. Really? Yeah. Um, let me check the release date, but my prime talking contender for the uh, early adapters is the Neverwinter Nights game. I did not know NWN tried to go with Linux. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, so first release was in 2002. The Linux release for it, I do believe, was in November of that year. So, you know, as early as, you know, early 2000s, we had at least one major publisher, Bioware, working on Linux gaming. Alrighty, that is something I did not know. Um, now, Bioware's not working on Linux gaming any longer, though. What happened there? Um, I'm actually not entirely too sure. Okay. Um, um, I know at one point Bioware got traded hands with parent companies, and I'm not sure where and when that all started, unfortunately. Yeah, I know they, I know that's been traded in and out and upside down a few times. Yeah, um, looking into it, one of the uh, one of the other early games was um, Baldur's Gate. I've actually never played Baldur's Gate, to be totally honest with you. I just never had the interest. Eh, well, we're not here to talk about <laughs> D&D gaming. We're here to talk about Linux and gaming, and it just happens that, you know, tangentially related. I remember first episode, the first um, incarnation of of the Linux I had. It was all gnome games like snakes and a flat two D basic chess and things like that. There wasn't a lot of gaming available for Linux at the time. 
now through wine and crossover and proton and everything like that a lot of the mainstream games have come to linux so what was the evolution of that um through monumental work by a passionate core of developers for the wine project um we have games now that you know run on windows that also in some cases actually run better on linux through wine than they do on their native platform um the way we got to that however is and it could be its own episode really but uh the wine development team started back in back in sorry hold on are your notes a mess again (laughs) yeah i had to i had to redo part of my file system to make room and yeah things are missing and now i'm having to research on the fly because i don't know where i put my notes file (laughs) (laughs) so let it be known kids that even though i may be a linux systems administrator and a linux nut myself doesn't make me any better at organizing my crap well that is something that all of us I, I think all of us can feel for you on <laughs> right um so wine started development way back in who 1993 now keep in mind that it was a long time before that there was anything usable from a project like that so the wine project started back around the same time that the linux kernel was being developed yes a little bit after but yeah very 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 early in the linux lifetime okay so I didn't know they went that far back. I thought Wine was more like 98, 99, early 2000s when the X, uh, the X platform really gained ground. That's about when it really started taking off and getting, you know, usable code. What we would call usable. Wine has, since its inception, always been able to run Hello World. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know of a platform out there that can't run Hello World. <laughs> Even the old Apple IIe can do that. <laughs> yeah, but you know what I mean. Not actually Hello World, but there was always test applications that, right. you know, right. ran. I understand. I gotcha. <laughs> but yeah, um, sadly, looking into the history of wine is kind of hard. Really? It's a GNU yeah. project, though. Yeah, but there's no concise and easily digestible this-is-our-history type thing that most projects have. Hmm. Okay. Um, that... A lot of my notes online were actually scraped from the, um, the Git repository from comments in their code. Really? That's surprising. Um, I thought that would be something that they would take pride in. Yeah, um, I'm not really 
too sure why they don't advertise their uh their prowess more when it comes to that. Um I can tell you that from what I remember of my notes <laughs> that um it was a good fifteen years ago that they reached version one. A project that's been going for twenty seven years took twelve years to reach version one. And just to give a context, what are they what version are they on now? Six point one is being released, I think, later this week. I'll have to update my wine. Yep. Much easier to do nowadays with proper wine managers like, you know, Play on Linux or uh, Lutris. This is true. And for Ubuntu, uh, wine makes it easy for you because it all goes into the app repositories. Uh, and they add, you know, they have you add their own repository when you're downloading it, so... Right. Um, another interesting point is Wine started off not... with no intention of supporting Win32. Really? They were only going to support DOS? They were only going to support 16-bit Windows applications. Because at the time, it was theorized that once 32-bit Windows took off, Microsoft would move to pretty effectively immediately kill 16-bit apps, which didn't happen for a good number of years after. I believe, I believe versions of Windows up until 98 or 98 SE, no, I think SE got rid of it, but I'm pretty sure Windows 98 can run 16-bit. No, uh, SE can run 16-bit also. Um... Okay, wow. 98 SE is where they introduced 32-bit, and it was such a limited mm -mm. support. Well, I, I no, you're 95. They introduced 32-bit, but it didn't really take off. The platform didn't really take off and become standard until Windows XP. Some in early Windows mm. 2000, but Windows XP is where 32-bit became standard. And okay, well, you know more about that than I do. Then in XP, SP2 is where they introduced 64-bit support, and it started to become standard. Oh, that was a nightmare. <laughs> it was still better than Windows ME. <laughs> eh, we gotta do an episode on just Windows ME one of these days, just... Because I have a completely different experience with that platform than literally everyone else. Oh no, your experience is the same as mine on that platform. I actually rather liked it. You liked it? Yeah, like I said, my experience has been completely different than everyone else. Okay, so like, yeah. You loaded ME onto a machine for me, and I never ran into any serious issues with it. It played all the games I wanted to play. It had all the applications running I wanted running. Yeah. Was that the red laptop? No. Okay. That was that silver and black <laughs> desktop. I had to ask because I remember that red laptop. Oh, man. Just a You anecdote. remember the death of that red laptop. <laughs> oh, yes, I do. Just an anecdote for our listeners. Um... Charlie used to have this red laptop that he that his dad bought him off of a website. 
it had a desktop pro processor in it. It did not have proper cooling for said processor. And it was AMD-based, early was, AMD. Yes, early AMD. Anyway, Gartrell had brought this laptop to me for me to fix it. And I did my tinkering with it, did what I could, showed him it was running before he left my left my office. He gets it home, and it doesn't want to boot up. He gets on the phone with me, and I'm going through my troubleshooting, and no sooner does he get on the phone with me than he hits the power button, and it boots. He lives on the other side of town from me. And since then, every time he's had a problem with a machine booting, he'll get me on the phone and that machine will boot. Less and less more frequently. Yes, less and less more frequently as your hardware has improved. But it has happened more than once. So just a slight side anecdote there. But gaming on yeah. Linux. Um, so yeah, getting back to wine development history. Um, in 2008 is when they reached version 1. And the way Wine works is a lot of people conflate it with being an emulator. It is not an emulator. It is simply a translation layer. It's taking system calls, which are deep-level, you know, applications telling the OS what the application wants that are designed for Windows systems, and regurgitating them in a way that Linux understands, and then taking what Linux gives them and regurgitating, or gives back, and regurgitating it back to the application so the application can do its thing. So it's kind of like a wrapper. Yes. Kind of. Kind of. I said kind of. <laughs> okay, so from Wine, now there's been multiple forks. Because there's Play on Linux and Crossover well, are the two popular that I know. Play on Linux is a manager, not a fork. But Crossover from Code Weavers, that is actually not even truly a fork. They are developed hand in hand. Wine is just the open source variant of Code Weaver's core product. Okay. Now I know Core, when it installs an application, it creates what they call a bottle. Um, and these are used in Play on Linux as well, where you have a specialized wine version, uh, version or variant. And all of the things that those programs need to run is installed inside of that bottle. So if it needs... .NET 3.5 or .NET 4.5 or DX10 uh, or anything like that. There's workarounds of installing that through Wine into that bottle and making it work. Mm-hmm. And that's been a huge pain in the neck for many of users, especially if they're not aware of the fact that you shouldn't be using your system's default built-in wine for everything it's really just there as a template right because i've well um i've played games where it would not run 
for nothing on the current version of Wine. I install a two-version back variant, um, and it runs perfectly. Uh, nah, Masquerade Bloodlines is like that. Um, you've run into what the Wine developers call a regression, and you should report it to the Wine HQ when you find those. I have, re- I have reported it to Wine HQ, and I have reported it to Proton both, because I've had to do both of those with that game. Well... That segues nicely into why we should be using a wine manager, or at least learning how to use bottles correctly. Now, the core developers for wine will insist up one wall and down the other that using Play on Linux or Lutris or even Proton is the lazy route. I'm sorry. No, it's not lazy. It's efficient. I was going to say it's the smart route, uh, in my opinion. Yeah, there's, there's less to screw up because it's all automated. Somebody has already figured out, put together the install script, and tested up to that point what works and what doesn't. Yeah, because there's in order to install DirectX 10 or DirectX 9, there's four or five different scripts that are workarounds that have to run in order for it to halfway install correctly. And then from there, it can pick itself up by its own bootstraps and actually get installed. Yeah. Right. Um, for instance, I, I play World of Warcraft and I have crossover. Mm-hmm. I've had less problem playing World of Warcraft in Crossover or through the Crossover Manager, the way they installed Battle.net, than I did on Windows. I have had higher frame rates. I have had less memory leaks. I have had... It's just been a thousand times better. And that's because when Crossover installs the Battle.net application, it installs Everything, every one of the games that Blizzard puts out is going to need. Yes, and if you actually replicated that install in a wine bottle, you'd have pretty much exactly the same results. And it would take... Exactly. (laughs) It would take about an hour and a half longer to install the game. (laughs) Right. So, going on to other managers, Play on Linux was... The first one that blew up. I can see that. I mean, the Linux community, if they can, they will go free. And play on Linux is free. They do ask for you to support them either through, I think it's Patreon now. I think they've switched to it. It used to be PayPal. Just to be able to keep that development moving forward. Yes, and if you can, you should be... um donating to them, becoming one of their patrons, because their work is actually used upstream in things like Code Weaver's crossover. And of course, you know, crossover has many a time given back to that community as well. Oh, yes. Anything that they find, any workarounds, anything at all, basically, they put it back downstream back into the wine app db 
um, just so that people know what they need to do. You know, there are some people out there that use Linux because they can't afford a Windows license key, which is understandable considering it's $150. Right, although... Not that it's technically the correct way of going about it, but find yourself a broken laptop on eBay and extract the key from it. <laughs> we don't recommend it, but... We don't recommend it, but I know many of people who go that route for their personal machines. Never, ever do this for a business machine. No, never, ever. I... Because quite... Personally, Quite frankly, I, personally, I say don't do it for your own personal machines either, especially considering Linux now will do everything that a Windows machine will do up to and including running Outlook and the Windows calculator and OneNote. And it's just ah, th I got an anecdote for that. <laughs> Shortly before we were started recording this session, I was looking into a workaround for someone on Reddit for how to get a Californian text um, PDF to work in Linux. There is no native way of getting this to work at all. You mean one of them that can be filled in? Yeah. There is no native way because of the technology that the Californian tax offices use to host their PDF forms. There's no way of getting it to work natively in Linux. And this is an artificial limitation coming from people who do not understand the way technology works. Which is comical considering it's California. That's where Silicon Valley is. That's where most of the money comes from. Yeah, um, but yeah, you know, we're getting off trap topic again, but yeah, there's no way of getting this to work because of the technology that this office uses, and it's completely stupid. But it segues nicely into another piece of Linux gaming history. How to get games from other platforms other than Windows working on Linux. Most people don't really think of their phone as a big gaming device, but there's a lot of mobile games out there and a lot of mobile gamers who like to sit down and play their games with a keyboard and mouse. This is true. What I've always done was used BlueStack. There is no Linux version of BlueStacks. I used it through Wine, which worked ah. really nicely. Oof, that's slow, though. Because now you've got a virtual machine running in an enumerator. Not the best way of doing, doing it. Um, the correct way of doing it is Anbox. That's one I have not heard of. Oh, Anbox is a wonderful little piece of software. Absolutely wonderful. Um, in fact, it's how I'm currently testing to see if I can bypass this artificial limitation for this Reddit acquaintance of mine. Okay, excellent. I'll have to look yeah. into that. Now, does Let me it go have... ahead and... So, Anbox can be used for APKs? Yes, it, um, it installs a 
complete, much like BlueStacks does, it installs a complete Android environment, sets up all the runtime directives, everything you need. So far, it's been running really well for me. Well, you want a sneak peek of it? I can turn on my uh, screen share for you. No, I'm taxing my system as it is. Fair I've enough. Got, I've got multiple things running in the background right now. Gotcha. Um, that's another nice thing about Anbox is it's much lighter than BlueStacks. Oh, very nice. So you could install, like, say, Animal Crossing New Leaf. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> it has full support for GPU acceleration, so any game should run as long as your computer actually has the oomph to match a basic smartphone, which, let's be honest, even Intel integrated GPUs usually do. So it would run on, say, a ThinkPad T440. I've got it running on a 450 right now. I will definitely have to take a look at that. Um, but yeah, um, getting back to the wine thing, more recently, we've had two newcomers to the Gaming on Linux managers, one of which is Lutris. Now, I know I've told you about Lutris in the past, but I don't think I've gone into exactly what it is. You have not. I have installed it, um, previously, um. Because it was needed for something to do with Proton? Um, you don't necessarily need Lutris to do anything with Proton. It just makes it easier to manage. It can make things easier to manage. It can also be your worst nightmare, especially when things go wrong. Sounds like you have experience. Oh, yeah. Um, what Lutris is, is there's the desktop application, which... Handles installing and managing all your various wine configs, your bottles, and setting up all your support applications. And then, what really makes Lutris powerful is the website. Yeah, Lutris.net. Their website acts as the gateway portal to all of the community install scripts that Lutris can run and install games from. And they even has a listing of exactly how well the game is expected to run. Rating from garbage all the way up to platinum, just like WineHQ. And it's all one-stop shop. Okay. Um, like I said, I've ran it once before. Um, didn't delve into it much because I also had crossover. Uh, and it was just for one game. Uh, it needed... It was a convoluted way of installing the SKSE 64 for Skyrim. Ah, yeah. Um, I believe the Skyrim SE page for Lutris has a couple variants of the installer. Okay, like I said, it was a convoluted way of running it, so... Yeah, slightly. Um, a game I play, which I know you have no interest in, but it is a game that I play, and it makes for a really good um, visual aid for the power of Lutris, is World of Tanks. Okay. And sadly, there's not really a clean way of showing this to the folks at home, but I've sent you the link, and 
if you scroll down a little bit, you can see all the various versions of the install script, when they were updated, and exactly what they're designed to do. Okay, excellent. Um, this is actually an episode I might create a video for, because we are going to start delving into live and video podcasts as well on our YouTube channel for Vocally Versatile also. Oh, nice. So, yeah. Um, the uh, In that case, I think uh, when we get into doing that, I'll have to get my uh my streaming set up a little bit better than it is right now that's something that i'm working on myself i'm having fun with my isp uh, which might be why oh, you, which yeah. might be why you lost a little bit of the audio um because i i'm supposed to have 20 megabytes upstream i have nine if i'm lucky <laughs> yeah I uh, won't say what our ISP is right now because I don't want to start a witch hunt, but we do share an ISP and I have been having my own share of problems with them recently. It seems to be a regional thing. I'm sure they're aware of it. I've complained enough times to them. Oh, I have too, and I'm going to complain some more. Um, but Proton. So yes, let's move forward to... Valve's Golden Child. So Proton started life as an actual fork of wine that was for internal testing use only at Valve. Well, go ahead. I was just saying, okay. I, I didn't know it was for internal an internal use only. Yeah, in its earliest iterations, it was there as a stopgap mechanism to help benchmark the um, the gold source ports and the proper source game ports of Valve's prominent games to Linux. And the reason why they developed it in the first place... Now, I'm not a Valve insider. I don't know this for sure. But I can tell you that from everything I've been able to gather, the reason why they forked it in the first place was because they were sick of having to report and manage the regressions that the wine developers kept introducing to wine regarding <laughs> particularly the Steam application. <laughs> and anyone who's been gaming on Linux or attempting to game on Linux for the past decade will tell you that at various points in the past yeah there has been some serious issues with running steam on wine proper yes i have run into a few of those issues myself um when a when steam came out with a linux native version of the client i was ecstatic oh yeah and on release day that that one game that was Steam's killer app for many years, Half-Life 2, ran freaking beautifully. That's because the but, Valve developers took their time and released a good version. Yeah, but there was a problem. 
do tell. The game was old by that point, and there was only one game on Steam Linux for like three weeks. It's like, okay, yeah, I've played through this like five times, guys. <laughs> Is this going to be another you-can't-count-to-three situation, Valve? But, snarkiness aside, I digress. Other games did follow. Counter-Strike uh, yeah, Source, Team I Fortress 2. Say, they, they didn't stop with just Half-Life 2. They uh, got things rolling pretty quickly. Yeah, um, and I also understand the, the reason for the wait. They wanted to make sure they the mechanisms that they have in place to distribute the games had time to synchronize and get all the various assets for all the various games sorted and cached and ready to roll when they clicked the release button. This is actually something that Valve tells you to do as a developer when you're releasing a game on Steam is wait two weeks, upload all your finished assets, wait two weeks, and then click release. That's actually a smart move on Valve's part. Mm-hmm. And it, it cuts back on a lot of the normal issues you would have immediately after release with things like edge caching CDNs and everyone getting non-screwed up copies of the game. Which still does happen with Valve and Steam. Everyone is going to have, at some point in their life, a minor data hiccup in transit. It's just the nature of the internet. Yes, which is part of the reason why Valve has the verify button where it goes mm -hmm. through caches, everything verifies your files are correct. And if there's something wrong, they fix it immediately. All you have to do is hit that one button. What's really interesting is the hashing mechanism that valve uses for that. They are, they took the relatively insane step of using a 256 bit hash. It's SHA-256 that they're running in the background to do their hashing to make sure that all the files are correct. That is a large hash for a game. It's a large hash for damn near anything you want to hash, but there's also a really good reason for it. There well, it's, is... It's got to be as, exact, so... Well, I mean, that's the point of hashing anything, but... You know why people don't use or recommend using SHA-1 or SHA-2 anymore? I'm sure you think SHA-2 is still secure. Well, SHA-1, there was so many security holes in it. Well, you know, there's not only that, but there was the biggest reason to use a hashing mechanism is... You can guarantee that any particular sequence of data is going to produce exactly that string. If this condition is ever false, it is called a collision, and the entire hashing mechanism is considered shit after a collision is found. I can see that. Uh, I know the collisions... I, I know collisions in data are just rampant 
on the internet because of the nature of oh. it and because of how much data is going across a well, single twisted pair cable at any one time. Well, you're conflating a transmission collision with a hashing collision. Hashing collision is seemingly innocuous because, huh, that's weird. These two files have the exact same hash. But anyone who has anything to do with security and making sure that a hashing algorithm is cryptographically secure will immediately and vehemently automatically do one of two things. Either A, scream up one side and down the other that your implementation of the hashing mechanism is incorrect. Or, if it's been well and thoroughly vetted, automatically disown, discontinue use of, and completely delete that hashing method from their repertoire. But now we're getting into, you know, data security, which should be its own episode. Yes, very much so. Back to Proton. <laughs> Back to Proton. So yeah, Proton uses SSJ-256 in the background to hash the files because for the immediate and foreseeable future, there should never be a condition where a collision can happen. Yes, collisions should never happen. Right. Um... And so far, every time, every single one of Steam's millions of users have ever had to click that verify button, if a file is missing or corrupted, the correct file then gets downloaded and that file is replaced. Failing a few outlying cases where your internet is satellite or other similarly shit tier. Excuse my language. Eh. <laughs> uh, don't get me started on them. Anyway. Um, sorry about that. Anyhow, yeah. <laughs> um, so, Proton being Valve's internal testing golden child went through a phase where the viability for market was weighed and considered and ultimately decided upon that Yes, this is the correct way of pushing more games to users. Because Valve spent... I don't even want to think of the ultimate and number of dollars on promoting Linux as a platform in direct response to Microsoft releasing the Windows Store and Windows 10. It was a lot. Um... Yeah, it was a huge marketing push. They got vendors like Alienware, iBuyPower, CyberPowerPC, all these companies to create what Valve was calling Steam Boxes, which were a dedicated Debian-based OS running basically X-Windows and Steam and little else to boot into Steam in big picture mode plug it into your TV, plug in your preferred gaming peripherals, and sit and play games. And because of that push, companies like Alienware, MSI, Asus, and HP are now selling 
very, very top end gaming machines with with the option Linux of having Linux installed native. Yep, pre installed. Don't even have an embedded Windows license key. Which, in my opinion, that's the smart way to go. But um, well, it's a huge win for Linux on the desktop and. <laughs> Everyone will tell you for the past 15 years, this will be the year of Linux on the desktop. But that's getting into Linux politics and should be another <laughs> episode of its own. We're, we're getting a few, uh, a few um, episodes for the series here. <laughs> well, you know, any decently sorted and storied history will generate its own glut of topics to talk about oh yes so they did the push they released proton and proton is in version five now um depends on how you count it there's version five point some oddball number anymore that just got released publicly but the beta version is version six and that's based off of the Wine 6. Yes. Um, Proton has developed uh, about two point versions behind Wine and released. They okay. try to keep it between two and five. You know, keep it relevant, but also make sure that they aren't introducing any regressions of their own and also fixing the ones that the Wine developers introduce. Right. And of course... <laughs> Proton is open source and all of their patches and fixes, Valve's patches and fixes, get sent as a pull request upstream to Wine. So directly benefiting everyone. Now, I remember a month or so ago, you and I were talking and you said that some of the Windows developers got together with Valve and fine-tuned proton yes um again this is more gleamed from community insights around people who go digging through source code for fun but there are some prominent windows developer names in proton source code as authors of certain files that's interesting because, as we mentioned in the last episode, the Windows subsystem for Linux, um, that has become very, very popular amongst Windows users that want to have that Linux option, but don't want to do, don't want to run a dual boot on their systems. Yeah, um, and... In fact, the Windows subsystem for Linux, I've been looking into it more. I actually booted it up in a VM. So, yes, I'm not escaping the irony that it's running Linux to boot Windows to run Linux. <laughs> but I actually looked at it in a VM, and yeah, I was pleasantly surprised when the Linux version, Linux native version of Steam installed, and I was able to play at very poor frame rates, Half-Life 2. It was the inside Linux of version. VM. Uh, right. But it was still pleasant, like, okay, yeah, that does work. Huh. Now, 
Proton being Valve's golden child, is there a way to run Proton without Steam? Yes. Okay. Um, actually putting a marker here. I need to take a, a couple minutes break. Shit. You are listening to Vocally Versatile. Thank you very much for tuning in and listening. And if you have a story that you want to share, if you have an experience with Linux that you want to share, or if you have a paranormal experience that you want to share, we want to hear about it. You can give us a call at 216-236-4923. Or you can leave your story on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash vocally versatile. If you call in to leave your story so that we can play it on the air in your own words, please enter extension 1000 or hit zero in the IVR prompt. Again, thank you very much for tuning in. If you like our program and you want to support us, You can do so through Facebook or through PayPal. So, back to Proton. So yes, back to Proton and how how to use Proton without using Steam. There are several ways of doing this. The most straightforward is, I keep plugging them, and for very good reason, because they make a decent program, Lutris will auto-detect any versions of Proton that you have installed through Steam and allow you to use it without launching Steam. And this will work with any game that Pro- that Lutris supports running through. Interesting. Or supports, yeah. I may have to reinstall Lutris. <laughs> yeah, it's a very powerful tool. And I, again, I keep plugging it because it's honestly the best wine manager I've ever found. I may have to reinstall them. Now... Aside from the official version of Proton, which is in its own right leaps and bounds ahead of where even Wine was two or three years ago, there are several people who are working to improve upon Proton faster than even Valve can. And how are they doing that? Um, well, there is the one user named Glorious Eggroll who develops his own version of Proton and releases it free to the public that includes many of bug fixes and performance tweaks and enhancements that really make Proton shine when you use them. But that still has to be ran through Steam. Again, you can run it through Lutris. You don't have to run it through Steam. And there are ways of getting Proton to work standalone even without Lutris. It requires having intimate knowledge of how to set up a wine environment, but eh, if you know what you're doing, yes, you can run any version of Proton without even installing the Steam client to download it. Okay. But again, back to performance metrics and actual history. Uh, GE, as he signs off on pretty much every communication, has always been a big proponent and big fan of Linux and gaming. And if I'd 
had more time to prepare for this, I would have seen if he'd like to come on the show and talk about his own experiences. Hmm. Maybe a thought for an addendum episode. Well, gaming on Linux has a lot of background, and we haven't even scratched the new uh, the newcomer to the to the scene. Um, so yeah, that is a possibility. Uh, but that works as a segue into Stadia. Ah, yes, Google's big, huge golden child, of which I have been sucked well and thoroughly into. More because of just being able to actually game at decent frame rates with, you know, real visuals. <laughs> uh, for those p- playing along at home, my computer is what most would affectionately call a potato. But I have suffered through beating many a game with far less than optimal frame rates all my life. I've always had computers that were just shy of minimum specs for most of the games I want to play. So I'm used to playing games at 15 or fewer frames per second. And I got pretty damn good at doing headshots on a slideshow. (laughs) Actually, one of the more current games that you're playing um, on Stadia is Grid. Yes, I personally love racing games and Grid is a really good racing game i'm not that good at it but it's still a good game (laughs) Um, my system with its recent upgrades has is barely fast enough to play grid mostly because of my video card it's an it's a dinosaur Mm. dinosaur video cards still have their place most of them can still be used for transcoding media or otherwise being a very good media encoder for streaming but that aside the machines that you're playing on are five to eight years too old for some of these games (laughs) yes and also started their lives out as business grade laptops with poor graphics performance in the first place this is true. <laughs> they were not built for graphics. They were not built for gaming. No, but what they were built to be, which, going back to the Red Laptop story, is thermal stability. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Very much so. I can hammer my laptops into the edge of submission and still only ever see temperatures in... I've seen as high as 83, which is still high, but well within acceptable thermal parameters for a laptop. And for those that are listening, that's 83 centigrade. Yes, Celsius, not Fahrenheit. Um, but back to Stadia. Back to Stadia, which I'm looking at my Stadia um, library right now, and it is quite extensive because i've also bought the ubi plus thing i'm still on the fence for that (laughs) um personal life aside i bought it for three games those games are assassin's creed valhalla uh the crew 2 and watchdogs legion and 
I guess Immortals Phoenix Rising, but I haven't even touched that one yet. So for 15 bucks a month, yes, I'm willing to pony up for those four games specifically and everything else is icing on the cake. <laughs> but Stadia. It, that, it's, but Stadia. It's a, like you said, it is Google's golden child. It was developed yeah. primarily for the Android and for the Chromecast. Yes. Well, the funny thing about that is it was only ever really supposed to be used on the Chromecast Ultra. Well, that hardware has aged out and is now being replaced by the Chromecast with Google TV. Google, get your naming right. Come on, man. <laughs> um, it's Android TV. Yeah. Even Google says and, it is. <laughs> yeah. And you know what's really sad about that? Google's product coherency is so bad that Stadia doesn't even run on that platform yet, officially. I know. But how this all relates to Linux is very interesting. Every game that I've mentioned from the list of Ubi Plus titles and every game that everyone who's ever played on Stadia has ever seen is a native Linux build of the game. And we alluded to this last episode when I said that, you know, there are Linux native builds of these games out there. They're out there. They're on Stadia. They're only ever run on very tightly controlled, very homogenous hardware, which removes a lot of the need for things like graphics quality sliders or other, you know, graphics related or even sometimes quality of life related tweaks that you can do to the games. Yes, um, we did allude to that last episode. Um, I know one of the games that you have finished, I am still in the process of playing, is Cyberpunk 2077. Which yes. was released only for the Windows, Xbox, and PS5 platforms initially. Uh, Google went this... to the developers and were like, hey, we want to offer this on our gaming platform. They're like, okay, let's well, see. Google... Let's test it. Google said, here's a bunch of money, make it work. <laughs> and the I don't have any concrete evidence to back up that claim, but what I can point to is the circumstantial evidence that, okay, well, it was still a buggy mess on release. Stadia was still the best way of experiencing all the game had to offer on release day. Yes, uh, there is still bugs and bug patches coming down through Xbox and PS5. Oh yeah, and on PC and Stadia as well. I think we're still a version behind on the desktop. I am not 100% sure. Um, I have... Let's see here, patch 112 just released, right? I think so. And booting Cyberpunk on Stadia... That's another beautiful thing. Being able to just go, okay, click the game, I want to see something. Don't have to screw with the recording stuff. Discord is still running with full resources in the background. 
reason, it's nice on older hardware. <laughs> and the reason that this is possible is because the application is running technically as a browser layer. So none of your resources other than your bandwidth are going into this game in any way, shape, or form short of whatever is used to run your Chrome browser. Yes, and keep in mind that the end user, yes, we are still on 1.11 on Stadia. Okay. Keep in mind that the way Stadia works is the game is running on a custom-built AMD gaming server running in Google's data centers somewhere, usually relatively close to the player. Usually. And then custom hardware that is hooked up to that server is taking the video out from the graphics card, which is an AMD Vega-based card, usually Vega 6, and encoded and transmitted to you as a, a, a live stream. And one of the things that makes Stadia amazing as a platform is that they've gotten the latency down to a point where it's tens of milliseconds. Now this is going to relate to some people because some people use Steamlink and go through yes. uh, Raspberry Pi or um, the Steamlink on the Android app or the Android TV uh, or the Steamlink app on their phone. And or even the now deprecated Steamlink hardware. Right. And they notice that there is a latency of anywhere from a second to three seconds sometimes. With Stadia, you hit the button and your character is doing exactly what they're supposed to do. So the latency is glorious. Absolutely. And the way this relates to Linux is because of the hardware used on Stadia's end, there's very, very, very specific settings in the Linux kernel that are designed to give a near real-time experience to video processing. Some of this code is actually written by Google and transmitted up to the Linux kernel source tree. So Google is starting to give back to the Linux community. And has been for many, many years. I did not know that. I did not realize that Google had been transmitting upstream to the kernel. Mm. They have um, quite a bit, actually, especially in recent years. If you do a, a Control-F on any piece of uh, particularly networking kernel code, and you search for the terms Google, Microsoft, Facebook, Twitter, you will see quite a lot that has been transmitted upstream from those various companies. Yeah, um, and how that all relates to gaming, again, comes back to Google had to build out the infrastructure and build up the software to a point where actually playing games and transmitting the resulting video back to the person playing the game had to be 
within the realm of human imperceptibility for latency. Which for most people happens to be somewhere in the band of 30 to 50 milliseconds. Okay. But yeah, um, getting back to hopefully what will become the future of gaming on Linux is that these companies that are developing these games learn from their Stadia experience and continue supporting Linux in the future? Well, I know, um, of course, we mentioned Valve, um, but I know Ubisoft and Bethesda are actually developing a Linux-native game client for some of their more popular games, like uh, Elder Scrolls Online. Uh, Bethesda has actually teamed with Valve and with Stadia for Linux players to be able to play that game. Yes. Um, in fact, ESO particularly is already live on Stadia's service. I could go buy it now and play it. I have it. <laughs> I'm not really all that interested in the Elder Scroll in the Elder Scrolls online, so I'm kind of skipping that one. But it's very nice to see that, you know, these companies are actually becoming invested in gaming on Linux because it's something that's needed a lot of attention and work for many a years. Yes. I mean, a lot of, a lot of game companies did not think Linux was going to be as heavy of a hitter as what it has become. Uh, They didn't think there would be that much interest in playing a game on a Linux desktop. That's because, honestly, there's not. And I know I'm going to sound completely contrarian to my usual gung-ho Linux, you know, Linux-first mantra, but when you break it down by the numbers, financially, it does not make much sense to develop a Linux-native client for most games. Now, Getting into that argument, we've got the Unity engine, certain versions of um, the Unreal engine, and other engines like Valve Source engine that make it very, very, very low bar to entry to click, compile, and have it spit out a Linux build. Unreal has actually been supporting the Linux builds for a very, very long time. Um, Yes. um, The first game from them that supported Linux natively was Unreal Tournament 2004. uh, There is actually a Linux version of 2003. Really? Yes. Huh. I was unaware of that. I have a copy of it. Nice. Because that was the first game that I got that was built on the Unreal platform, was Unreal Tournament 2003. Uh, Then they released Unreal Tournament 2004. It still had the Linux build in it, so I went with it. Um, By the way, folks, that is actually couples therapy in my house. So... (laughs) (laughs) You should invite me to a game one of these days. 
when we uh when we uh, get into an argument that just goes into a stalemate, we we break out Unreal Tournament on local land and, well, I'm glad. Settle your differences version. with, <laughs> settle your differences with violence, virtual yes. violence. Well, it's better than having the cops called for a domestic disturbance. So. <laughs> yes, much so. Although I have definitely had the cops called on me for yelling too hard at teammates and enemies in video games. <laughs> yes, my, It's always uh, a fun conversation. My wife likes to headshot me in, when we go into couples therapy. So, <laughs> But we also just celebrated 20 years of being together, even through the quarantine and everything. We are one of the few mm. that came out the other end a little bit better off, I think. Good. That is always a wonderful thing to hear. Yes, especially considering you hear all over the news where couples have filed for divorce because of quarantine because they just could not live with each other. So, <laughs> Yeah, sad reality of... Well, I'm not going to get into that subject at all. Not on this show. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, anyway. So, going back to the history of Linux and gaming... You'll probably be surprised to find out that the Linux native builds of these very old games probably don't work on modern versions of OSs. Why would that be? Libraries and dependency hell. Oh, yes. There are a lot of dependencies that have been deprecated. Yes, and... Keep in mind, in the early days, a lot of these developers, like BioWare with um, Baldur's Gate and Neverwinter Nights, and Epic with Unreal Tournament, treated it a lot like Windows, where the libraries are immutable and will always be available. I had a stint back in 2014 where I tried up one side, down the other, and around the corner to get the Linux-native version of Neverwinter Nights to run on a then-modern version of the of Ubuntu and could not get it working at all. Even using the source code that was on the CDs to build the libraries, because the libraries were built in a way that was binary incompatible to the source game would not run. Well, as interesting as it is, it was also kind of a blessing in disguise. Because at least with Neverwinter Nights, it turns out that the Linux build of the game after you got it installed was incompatible with most of the mods. <laughs> So that's the way it always works. <laughs> right. <clears throat> and real quickly, I want to touch on one more platform uh, of Linux, uh, Linux gaming that actually is cross platform um, before we wrap up this episode, before we run too long. And that is Java. Oh, good God. Java <laughs> and subsequently flash. Well, okay, yeah. So, 
let's take what is arguably Java's killer app that everyone should be familiar with. Minecraft. Minecraft. <laughs> Minecraft on Linux works just as well as it does on any other platform that it's supported on. I think it works a little bit better um, just because of the memory management and the CPU usage in Linux. Okay, but cycle for cycle, clock for clock, Java will sit there and make whatever application is running with it within its little VM space, and it is a virtual machine, by the way, and it will have the same runtime parameters and runtime characteristics on Windows, on Mac, on Linux, on an old-ass phone, if you happen to have one. Java, it's old technology, but it's pretty stable and, well, not the most secure thing ever. Works well enough for gaming. That said, I really don't think the Java client should have ever been written in Java. Or, did I say Java <laughs> client? I meant Minecraft client. I don't think the Minecraft client should have ever been written in Java. The client itself should have been C or C++ or some variant thereof. I have to agree with you on that. Um, just because of tick failures and things like that, that the, the timers and everything use in that game, the more in-depth, just even in the vanilla version of the game, the more in-depth it gets, the more apt you are to crash. On one level, on another level, going completely the opposite direction, take, um... Take Computercraft, the mod, for example. The author of Computercraft built an entire working YAML-based operating system in Java, including a working interpreter and working command cycles to create a computer in Minecraft. Which that man, a fully POSIX-compliant computer, mind you. That man should receive a Nobel Prize for that, because that was a <laughs> feat. Oh, yeah, and if you look at, like, if you look at the computer craft source code, you can see just what kind of hacks, and I won't call them half-assed because they fully work, but mind-bogglingly inane ways he had to overcome limitations but he did it <laughs> he did it and he released a piece of code that well seemingly very simple on its surface is entirely far too in-depth to cover even in a single episode of our show let alone as a blurb this is true this is very true that is and he and he does this all without being paid. So if you, do uh, he's play, got a Patreon. Well, that's what I was gonna gonna say. If you do play Minecraft and you do use the Computer Craft mod, please go and help this man out. Become one a patron for him. 
and let him know that the community is still behind him. Yeah, for sure, because there's still and the the community that he built around this platform is also subsequently amazing because there's people who have built pretty much anything you can imagine from complete desktop environments down to worker scripts that do inane tasks for you so you don't have to in game like farming <laughs> like farming like building like digging huge ridiculous tunnel networks which by the way we've both done <laughs> yes we have <laughs> Okay, so we are a little bit long. I will clean up some of this in post. That'll shorten us a little bit. But, Gertrell, thank you for joining us yet again on another episode of Vocally Versatile. And cue the outro. Um, before you cue the outro, I would like to reciprocate the thank you for having me. And thank you all for bearing with us. Uh, we like to go on tangents, but... Sometimes that's half the fun of a podcast. Oh, yes. That, it, you got to keep it interesting to keep people listening because you never know what's going to come out of our mouths next. <laughs> right? Well, that's why we're vocally versatile. <laughs> All right, everyone. Thank you for listening. And here's the outro.